0: Start with a little quiz. Uh, Any idea, anyone, how many social media followers Cristiano Ronaldo has? Too many. many. Four million. million. It's a he, Dave. (laughs) Sorry. Six million. Any advance on six million? Eight hundred and eighty-eight million followers across social media platforms. So about I think I think it's something like six hundred million on Instagram. Uh, anyone, anyone have any ideas how many nukes, nuclear warheads the USA has? Too many. <laughs> Too many. Uh, two thousand two hundred. Two <laughs> thousand two hundred. Apparently the answer is five thousand two hundred and forty four. Which apparently is enough to destroy humanity ten times over. Uh, in um, in the UK, how many state schools are there? Any idea? Not enough. Seventy-nine. 79. Zero. Twenty thousand. 20,000 uh, with 10 million children attending schools that the state has control over what is taught. Uh, who has any idea about how much money the world's richest man, Elon Musk, has, too much, has uh, at the moment? I, I, I don't know if this is right, up to date, but at some point in 2023, this was estimated. 26 billion. 26 billion. That'd be a lot of money. 260 billion, that is roughly in dollars the right amount. It is 200 billion pounds, very good, well done. Um, so that means roughly, if he didn't earn any more money at all for the rest of his life, he could still pay every single person in Northampton the, the average amount uh, for 60 years. Um, <laughs> You see, the the reason that um, I've asked you those questions, we think about those sorts of people, is that when we look around us, and when we read the newspapers or watch the telly, what we see is what seems to be a seemingly unshakable kingdom. Powers that seem so vast that we feel minuscule, utterly powerless. The powers of this world seem indestructible and unstoppable don't they? But they're also ideological. Power is not neutral. Even if the power seems to us to be, to be being used largely for good, it's only good as it is seen by the one with the power. And power is a means of uh, controlling to one's own ends. For instance, the USA uses its military power for self-protection and influencing global political scene. The UK government uh, seeks to um, uh, embed British values in teaching and aiming to mould productive future members of society. And power pushes its own agenda, its own ideology. And you will really feel that if your ideology is at odds with the one with the power. Do you know what I mean? If you're significantly at odds, if you're a country who is significantly at odds with the USA um, uh, on the international stage, you're going to feel the pressure of them being against some of what you stand for and and all of the the power that their military might, uh, as well as economic and diplomatic might, uh, brings. If you're at odds with uh, social media influencers, influencers, significantly enough, you're going to feel the pressure of the public opinion over which they hold sway. If you're at odds with the UK government in terms of what you want your children to learn, you're going to feel the pressure of society and the school system that they seek to control. If you're at odds with the power of this world, you will be made to feel like in some way or another you're on the wrong side of history. Now, why am I talking about all of that? Well, because when we feel like we're on the wrong side of history, Abram's story is exactly what we need to hear. It's an opportunity to understand what it means to live in a world like that, but to live by faith. Uh, We've used the phrase, as we've been going through this um, uh, section of the book of Genesis, uh, life in the gap. You see, God has promised followers of Jesus full, perfect, everlasting life. He's promised us victory and freedom and peace, but those promises are for the future. We're now in the gap between the promises being given to us and the promises being fully fulfilled one day. And that's why we have to live by faith rather than by sight. As we were thinking about in joining the dots this morning, that's why we occupy two cities. At the same time, the city of this world and the city of God. We now see the power of the world arrayed against us. But living by faith means means believing that there is a different sort of society. A different sort of history. A different sort of power that we don't see now. That's the story of Abram, and that's the message of chapter 14 in particular. So let's start with um, verses 1 to 13, uh, with all those names um, uh, which uh, we managed to get through. Uh, Why do we have all those names? Well, the point is, influences are reborn, not made. Um, If you um, have your um, uh, word sheet, it has all of the, uh, the main points that we'll be thinking about, and children... Uh, you've got some things to help you in your activity booklets to help you follow along. But the point of this first uh, half of the chapter is that influences are reborn, not made. Do you notice how um, uh, all these names are zoomed way out from Abram? They've, in a sense, they've got nothing to do with him or even um, uh, what we've been seeing in previous chapters. We're now in the realm of world politics, Multinational alliances, kings, nations, wars, rebellions, and loads of confusing names. Basically, the story goes like this. There's this guy, Kedol Leoma, and, um, and three other kings from the east, from Mesopotamia, out, out way way to the east of the land of Canaan, where Abram is. And um, they had previously conquered... Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns, and uh, presumably imposed taxes on them, getting tribute from them. But after 12 years of paying this tribute, these taxes, to these eastern powers, Kedorlaomer, the Canaanite kings had had enough. They uh, refused to bend their knee anymore, they stopped paying their taxes, and so Kedorlaomer, these other powerful. Uh, imperialist kings, come over, bring their armies, make the journey to the west to put down the rebellion. And the first thing they did, actually, is to go around the area surrounding these cities and conquer the Rephites, the Zuzites, the Amites, the Horites, the Amalekites, the Amorites, all of the people in a circle around this area. So they're isolated, they're cut off from any other potential source of help. And then finally we get to the battle with these rebellious kings. Verse 8. If you've closed your Bibles, open it back up, please. Page 14 in these ones. I don't know, sorry, the large print number. But Genesis chapter 14, verse 8. Then, here's the battle. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Abner, the king of Zeboyim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedaleoma, king of Elam, the king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five but there's this build-up to what is barely a fight. We don't really get told about the fight. The might of these great eastern kings is, is seemingly overwhelming. It's like a, a steamroller. And the other kings, all we're told about them is that they flee. Um, uh, verse um, 11, uh, ver- sorry, verse 10. Some of the men fell into tar pits, the rest fled to the hills. Uh, these, some of the men either meet a sticky end uh, or um, it could mean they hide out in the tar pits to get away from these armies, uh, or they scatter. And then, uh, the others, they take the spoils of war, uh, the tribute, uh, perhaps that was owing to them uh, for, for this time of rebellion, and then verse 12, they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who'd escaped came and reported this, to Abram the Hebrew. Uh, Abram the Hebrew because this is an international story, um, but we zoom in here back into Abram. And now we get to the reason why this international news story makes it into the Bible, why we've even heard of these people. Because the great king, Kedulioma, incidentally, a bit like Pharaoh in the previous chapter, ends up messing with Abram with the one guy who is the recipient of these great and glorious promises of the God of heaven and earth. And see why that's a really important point? Here we are, and thousands of years later, we can look at these events with a bit of perspective, can't we? And we've got these mega-powerful international players on the world stage, like Cado Leoma and these other kings on the one hand. But on the other hand, the only reason anyone knows their names is because they come across Abraham. They accidentally rub, rub up against God's chosen people. Influences can have hundreds of millions of followers. Uh, we can feel overwhelmed if we um, spot a famous person Uh, across the room at a restaurant or something. But the people who will be remembered in a million years' time are not the rich or famous or the presidents of the great world powers. It will be the people of God, the recipients of God's grace and his promises. It's one of the reasons why, um, in joining the dots before church, we're studying... Church history. Because that is the history that will really matter in the end. It, that is the stuff which is significant eternally. The rest, the stuff you read about in the news, is subordinate to that. It's below it. Now, we um, uh, fit into that story too. Uh, we all have ambitions, don't we? Uh, children, perhaps you have an idea of what you want to be when you grow up. Maybe you've got. A dream of what you want to be or what you want to do, what you want to achieve. Perhaps you want to be a fireman to save people. You want to be a doctor to heal people. You want to protect the rainforest or help the poor or whatever it is. But it goes for all of us. We all have these ideas of what it will look like to to, to change the world for the better, even even in a very, very small way. Change our world for the better. Teens, grown-ups, perhaps you want to, be, to have influence, to be loved, to be independent. Perhaps... Make your mark in whatever way on the people around you, on uh, your family, even, on your neighbours. Well, good. That's not in itself a bad thing. But as you consider how it is you can make your mark on the world, as you think about your future, your relationship with those around, around you, you need to remember that the history of the world is really the story of God. And the people who trust his promises. If you want to be an influencer, you've got to be reborn into this people of God. So, if you want to change the world... Get on board with what God is doing in the world. God's plans. You need to understand what God's plans for the world are. You need to understand what God's plans for you really are. The reason that's true is because of the second point that we're going to see in verses 13 to 16, which is this. World history is shaped by the promises of God. God is the God of heaven and earth. He's the one in charge of all things. He is the one in charge of every moment of all of history. So when we zoom in on this, um, uh, from this multinational stage in uh, Genesis 14 to Abram, the, the recipient of God's promises, and Abram's nephew Lot, whom Kedah Leoma has taken captive, well, then this great king and this alliance of kings comes up against the promises of God. If you're here in previous weeks, you might remember that it was uh, God, um, that the, it was to Abraham that God had made these four great and glorious uh, promises. A place, uh, the land that Cado Leoma was subject, uh, subjugating. A people, Abram's family was going to be a massive nation. Protection, anyone who curses Abram would be cursed by God. And a plan. A- Abram was going to. U- God was going to use Abram and his family to bless the whole world. So Kado Leoma has picked a fight with the wrong guy. Uh, you know how um, Ukraine uh, wants to be in NATO, uh, partly because if um, someone declares war on a member of NATO, they Uh, declare war on the whole of NATO, all of the countries who are in NATO. Well, you really don't want to go to war against the guy God has said he's in a NATO alliance with. So look at the result. Halfway through uh, verse 13. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anna, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive... Uh, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hoban, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. God had promised to curse those who curse Abram. And so when Abram goes to fight his uh, nephew's kidnappers he is believing the promises of God in chapter 12. And even if they happen to be great kings with great armies who just conquered the whole region, well, it's a little bit like if you've seen Taken or any subsequent films with Liam Neeson in, um, or any action star, really, in any film, you really know what is going to happen when people start taking their pot shots at them. Whatever the odds... The star of the show is going to win in the end. Actually, here, it's a very brief and abrupt story with Abram. Again, it seems barely like a fight. He gathers his men, routes the massive scary enemy army, and then just takes a lot back. And this isn't told to us so that we think, what a brilliant guy Abram was. What a masterful tactician he must have been dividing his men. Or to make us think, oh, good, I now know a bit more about um, Bronze Age history, whatever it was. The idea behind this being in the Bible is so that we realise that the world history, all the powers of this world, are shaped by God's hand and by God's promises. Empires rise and fall at the behest of God. The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian, the Greek, the Roman, the Austro-Hungarian, the Communist, the Western Liberal, the Russian Expansionists. All empires are subject to the word of God, to the promises of God, and will rise and fall at God's command. God is working all things in accordance with his promises. Big things, small things. And the church, therefore, is the one people, the one nation or city that will continue to grow and flourish, at least spiritually, from this time to the very end. That doesn't mean there won't be opposition and persecution and struggles and fights, but it's, it's not physical battles that we'll be fighting or that we'll be promised, that we're promised victory in. The promises of God to his people are what will win out. So two things for us to think about then, uh, if um, world history is indeed shaped by the promises of God. Two questions that this passage asks of us. Firstly, will we pay more attention to the promises of God on the one hand, or the influences of this world on the other? Political, cultural, social, financial. Do we think that our tomorrow is in the hands of whichever political party is in the ascendancy? Or whoever signs our paycheck? If we do, then we'll desperately fight for that political party or ideology to prevail in our country. Or for our employer to think well of us, or whatever it is. But if we, actually, if we get that actually our tomorrow is not shaped by the politics of the United Kingdom, but by the promises of our God, and therefore the fate of the church, will begin to care a little bit less about who holds the political power in the UK at the moment, or what our job title is, and a bit more about what God has to say to us and to our church. Because that's our real and permanent country, that's where we belong. And the second question is related. And what will we pay more attention to? First question. Second question, which will we invest in? Will we invest in the promises of God or in the promises of the world? There are loads of promises that this world holds out to us. Work for a good grade at school or a promotion, and life will go well for you. Get more money, and you'll be more secure. Life will be safe. Make sure you're healthy and comfortable. You'll find joy and peace. Get more followers or fame or reputation and you'll matter more. Get the right sort of relationship, family, and then you'll be happy. But if we invest ourselves and our hopes into those promises... And those promises alone, we will be disappointed. We'll waste our lives. And even though if we trust Christ, we might be saved in the end, we'll find that everything we've poured our hearts into will be burned up and we'll escape through the flames burning down our lives' work. On the other hand, if we invest ourselves into God's promises which are shaping the course of human history, in the end, it will certainly be worth it. We will never regret it. It might seem crazy right now to do that. It will, in fact, seem crazy right now. It will be totally radical, totally different to the world around us. It must be if the promises of God and the promises of the world are different. If there are two sorts of city. If we're living by faith, and not by sight, if we make it our priority this coming week to invite anyone who might come to the 3 one course, if that's our big thing for the week, we will miss out on other stuff. There will be other ways in which our weeks will not be as good, at least in the eyes of those around us, as they might have been otherwise. But it makes sense if history is being shaped by the promises of God. If we drag ourselves along to church when we're feeling rough, even though that means we won't have the energy to do our paid work as well as we might have otherwise, we might disappoint some people. We might let them down. But it makes sense if church is the focus of God's plans in the world. We'll know whether we're um, investing in the promises of God or the promises of the world when the pressure is on. That's when you can really tell which way you're going, isn't it? For instance, if uh, if you've got exams coming up and you end up skipping rooted or church to squeeze a few extra hours of revision in, well, that's a good indication that the promises of this world are looming larger in your mind than are the promises of God. It's a question we've all got to ask ourselves. Which are we paying attention to? Which are we investing in? And if you're aware that you struggle, and all of us do, don't we? If you're aware that you struggle to pay attention more to the promises of God, to invest into the promises of God rather than the promises of this world, well, the final part of this chapter... Is so helpful because it offers us another way, another way for us to look at this, uh, which I think um, can change our perspective. And that is because it asks us this question not just whose promises are you listening to, but whose blessings are you seeking? Whose blessings will you seek? And that's uh, what verses 17 to 24 of chapter 14 are about. After Abram bring, brings back Lot and the loot, he's confronted by these two kings. First, uh, verse 17, the king of Sodom, presumably having cleaned up after his time in the tarpits. Uh, verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Cador Leoma and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaver, that is the king's valley. But before the king of Sodom gets the chance to say anything to Abram, uh, the second king turns up, verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, probably Jerusalem, uh, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Melchizedek is a mysterious figure. But uh, we see that he's the, the king slash priest of Jerusalem, holding on to the knowledge of the true God in the midst of... Uh, the moral and religious cesspit of Canaan. And when he meets Abram, he blesses Abram and he blesses God. And then the king of Sodom gets his chance to say what he wanted to say. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. It sounds like a great deal. He's offering Abram wealth, but it comes with strings attached. Invisible strings, perhaps, unstated strings, but strings of loyalty, of indebtedness, of submission, of the wealth of Sodom, attachment to Sodom. And so these two kings effectively present Abram with a choice to make. Will he accept that really attractive offer of the king of Sodom? of the spoils of this fight and this um, uh, riches and then be under his influence? Or will he throw in his lot, as it were, with the king of Jerusalem? Will he take bread and wine with Melchizedek? Well, you can see what he chose to do. Verse 20, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand I've sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you'll never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anna, Eshcol, and Mamre, these allies. Let them have their share. Abram is rejecting being in the sway of the king of Sodom, being a vassal of the king of Sodom. He throws himself in instead with the king priest of God Most High. I wonder what we would do. I wonder what you would do in Abram's boots. It's not actually a hypothetical question. It is the choice each of us face in this world. All of us is faced with a choice whether to throw our lot in with the king-slash-priest of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ, who demands from us not only a tenth, but a hundred percent, everything that we have. Or we can listen to the king of Sodom, the one who whispers promises of everything our hearts desire, who offers us um, uh, money and influence and fame, and yet doesn't really have any power to give us the things that he offers. If we listen to him like, I guess, Adam and Eve did back in the garden. We'll find the promises to be empty and our hopes to be shattered in the end. If we follow, on the other hand, the king of Jerusalem, although it comes with a cost, his promises are rock solid. They're the promises of God, the same promises that God made to Abram, a place in a new world. A people to be our own family. Relationships restored. No barriers. Perfect love and acceptance. Protection for the journey there. Being a part of the great plan of history. For Jesus to offer up to his father a people who are are his very own. When we look around us, we see the power and the promises of the king of Sodom. Uh, we, we, We look at all those influences military might the ideology of our own country and it we feel so small they seem so indestructible so unstoppable they seem to hold sway over the minds of our whole society and yet we can say no we must say no however much they tell us we're on the wrong side of history we can take the bread and wine of the king of jerusalem we can live by faith in his promise. We can take our place in the real history of the world, not by gaining power or status or influence here and now, but by investing in the eternal wor- world that God is creating. Let me leave us in prayer.